Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars related to game design and publishing. This panel has been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and presenters at Metatopia 2019. Episode 261, Updating Cyberpunk for the 21st Century, presented by Dexter Duckworth and Elsa S. Henry. situation. cyberpunk for the 21st century. So a little bit about my background and why uh, this panel exists. Um, so I'm a cyber uh, security engineer uh, originally, and I have kind of ended up working on every spooky technology uh, that you see in cyberpunk. Uh, I spent about six years as a robotics and AI researcher, and right now I am the software lead at a company that works on integrating brain-computer interfaces with machine learning and computer vision. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Hi, my name is Elsa Shonison-Henry. I am a science fiction writer and editor. Um, I'm on this panel because I do a lot of work in integrating disability into our future thinking for world building. And uh, I do a lot of criticism of projects that literally don't. Uh, yeah, and so essentially, the initial question I really wanted to discuss here, uh, I think there's kind of two questions. One is how can you update the actual literal technology of cyberpunk to integrate newer technologies? The, I think more interesting question is how do you update the themes uh, of cyberpunk to in, uh, include more modern ideas? And so I guess uh, one question that uh, I would like to start with is just, uh, do you feel like cyberpunk needs to be updated, and if so, how? I mean, yes, I do. 
Um, I, I think it's uh, a lot about how any genre needs to be updated at a certain point. I mean, certainly the horror genre has had to be updated as well. Um, I think with cyberpunk specifically, part of why it's important is because it is something that's 10 to 15 minutes in the future. And if we're not thinking about certain marginalized groups when we think about the future, what we're actually doing is shunting people out of our future thinking altogether. So like, if we decide that there are no disabled people in our cyberpunk future, what ends up happening is that people don't start thinking about how we integrate disabled people into our actual future. It's complicated. Absolutely. <laughs> and, uh... Hi, sorry. Hi, no worries, welcome. <laughs> Uh, and <laughs> uh, yeah, and uh, what I would say is, I obviously also think uh, it <laughs> needs to be updated. And specifically, my thinking is one: uh, I think cyberpunk has always tended to be applicable to you know the uh, experiences of certain you know marginalized groups of people. That but that doesn't necessarily mean it's actually inclusive. Yeah. You can apply allegory to a lot of things without it actually being. Uh, a, a, an inclusive allegory. Uh, and then, furthermore, I think there are a lot of experiences uh, that are being integrated into more modern cyberpunk, but in a way that doesn't really change the core conceit of cyberpunk significantly. Uh, I, I think a good example is the, uh, the new Cyberpunk 2020 game by uh, 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 Project CD Red, uh, where you know, I, I haven't played it, I don't it out yet, uh, but you can play uh, as uh, gender non-conforming, gender non-binary uh, trans people, I believe, but as far as I'm aware, there's no element of it that actually integrates any of that experience into the gameplay or the story or anything. It's, it's kind of just an additional uh, affectation that's added on to the overall uh, you know, trappings of the world. What I think sort of my... my bugbear is obviously disability, but like when I think about cyberpunk in terms of sort of integration, part of what bothers me is that all of the adaptive tech that's invented in cyberpunk settings is ultimately for able-bodied people. It's like we can get these augmentations and make our bodies better, but it's always in the context of able-bodied people hacking themselves. There's never a conversation about the fact that disabled people have been hacking themselves for centuries. Absolutely. So like that's another way in which the, the genre itself doesn't really integrate, and so if we're not thinking about integrating that history, we're actually failing people on a pretty heavy level. Like, look, I'm wearing Bluetooth hearing aids right now, and a prosthetic eye, and the prosthetic eye is technology that's been around since 1880. They've been making them out of glass since 18, even before that, it was like hand-blown pieces of glass that you put in your eye. Now they make it out of acrylic plastic, but it's the same concept, it's the same technology. That's a, that's a body mod. Absolutely. So that's kind of one of the things that I see is like, why aren't we talking about this? Why isn't this an integrated part of it in a modern perspective? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and actually, I think one thing, uh, I'm sorry, I don't know your name, but Kevin, we were, Kevin, we were discussing earlier is, uh, you know, a, a pretty key theme of a lot of cyberpunk is that body mod and you yeah. know, upgrading yourself and potentially losing your humanity and these trade offs of what does that mean? And that is something that people with disabilities have already been experiencing uh, for a long time, and it's something that's going to increase, uh, I think, significantly. Uh, I'll stop there. Sure. I mean, I think I think the other thing to think about is that the loss of humanity aspect is really problematic. 
Yeah, I, I shouldn't I shouldn't say loss of humanity specifically, but but the kind of trade off aspect of like, you know, uh, you know, what am I kind of uh, having to give up in order to, be, you know, have this thing? Right, but I guess that's what I'm saying is if if an able bodied person is experiencing like body modification, and they feel that they're losing part of themselves or their humanity, what does that say about a disabled body? That says that the disabled body is lesser than. So that's why it gets complicated, yeah. because it's like, well, no, I'm not losing my humanity because I'm adapting to a world that gives me adaptive aids. Mm -hmm. I think where that does become true, and this is part of why I don't think we want to lose that component completely, is when we start talking about AI. Mm -hmm. Because if we have AI that can be a part of our adaptive aids, who's in control? Mm -hmm. I think that's actually a more interesting question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, and I, I think uh, to kind of share uh, why I, I kind of went in this direction. Uh, so I said I work for a company that does uh, brain-computer interfaces, and so uh, if you're not familiar, brain-computer interfaces are uh, hardware that literally goes into your, your skull uh, and allows you to uh, interface with the computer. And right now, uh, there's really only one population of people who have ever received those types of implants, and those are uh, uh, people who are tetraplegic. Uh, and getting those implants is, uh, right now, actually pretty terrible. Uh, it's, yeah. it, it doesn't actually give you that much. I mean, it basically lets you be a guinea pig for researchers, uh, and you know, it's really, really inconvenient. And so you know, there's uh, this idea that you know, by giving people these implants, you know, you are, you're uh, helping them significantly, uh, which is the eventual long-term goal of all these research projects, but the reality right now is that the, you know, the people who are getting these implants are actually you know, uh, making a huge sacrifice for the further um, of scientific progress uh, to have a giant thing sticking out of their heads for the foreseeable future and undergo multiple brain surgeries. And, and so that's kind of what I mean by, you know, this is something that people are already experiencing in terms of the trade-offs of you yeah. know, what having these implants can mean. Well, for me, it's, I, I was on a panel at Baltimore Book Festival last weekend, and we were talking about kind of this, this thing. And I was like, look, you have a literal cyborg on a panel about AI. And, um, you know, we were talking about AR and AI and all of this kind of like how, how we are interacting with machines, how machines are interacting with us, how we interact with alternate reality. And I'm like, look, I'm a cyborg. I'm literally wearing computer parts in my ears. They connect to my phone. I control it with my phone. I interact with the world using them. Like... I'm walking around with Google Maps talking to me in my ears. But there's a huge failure here. Actually, there's two huge failures. One, if the battery dies and I forget my batteries, I'm, not, I'm no longer connected to the net, and to use a cyber term. Once you're kicked out of the net and you're, built in, you're relying on that society to take care of you, you're screwed. Number two, the technology isn't really that great. Like, there's a lot of failures that happen. Like, I went and visited the Neutrobuoyancy Lab at the University of Maryland last week, and the level of humidity in that room caused my wax traps to fill. Wax, wax traps aren't something I carry with me on a daily basis, because you only need to clean them out once a month. Unless if you go visit a lab with 100% humidity, and then your ears go, hey, guess what, I'm wet now. <laughs> So depending on your circumstances, depending on what environments you're in, your tech doesn't actually always work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and uh, I think 
one other thing I, I wanted to touch on as well uh, is getting back to that less interesting question of just the actual literal technology <laughs> of uh, cyberpunk I being updated. It's less interesting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, essentially, the the uh, the kind of original thought I had that spawned this panel was just we already live in a dystopia <laughs> in, a, in a very in a very real way. <laughs> Uh, and in fact, we live in a dystopia that is in a lot of ways much worse uh, in terms of the technology being used, and arguably just in general, uh, than many uh, works of cyberpunk. And you know, especially if you look at China, uh, which obviously I don't live in China, so I'm not going to get into uh, because I don't know that much specifically about it, but just the capability of companies and governments uh, to uh, observe people and, and Really, uh, it's interesting because there, there's a kind of trope in cyberpunk where you have like an ID card that you take everywhere with you, and it's you know your identity and you know the, the standard narrative device of oh I've lost my ID and now I'm not existing anymore, or I you know my ID been confused with someone else. And the thing is that we already live in a world where that isn't even necessary because it is so trivially easy to identify you by your face anywhere you go forever. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, in, in that way, we're very much living in a, uh, a dystopia that is already more capable <laughs> than a lot of, uh, of uh, cyberpunk dystopias. Well, I think that's one of the things that's interesting is that as our technology changes in reality, the technology of cyberpunk will change, mm -hmm. you know? Because we're consistently having to update it so that it actually becomes more terrifying in a realistic way. Because um, yes, governments actually do a lot more than most cyberpunk governments do. Uh, there's also the fact that the, the realities of hacking have become much different and much more real. I mean, my favorite thing that I torture other science fiction writers with is, did you know you can hack a pacemaker? <laughs> you can hack somebody's heart. Yeah, that is interesting in cyberpunk. You never, as far as I'm aware, really see hacking of the body mods. I mean, it comes up occasionally. I'm currently writing that. There you go. <laughs> but you think that would happen a lot more if you, know, if you could just short out somebody's, uh, you know, cyber arm. Right. Like, and that's that's actually what I what I'm working on yeah. right now is I'm working on a project that is about a group of disabled people who are poor wearing mods and adaptivates, and they get hacked, and the mystery is figuring out who's hacking. But like one of the characters has um, basically scleral implants that help her see important things. So it's like she, her eyes are literally linked into the infrastructure. So she can see when a light goes green. She can't see anything else, but she can see the literal yeah. like electrical grid, more or less. Um, so when they when somebody hacks them. They can make it so she sees red instead of green. <coughs> or they can make her see green instead of red. Then she's walking into the middle of traffic and gets hit by a car. Right? Yeah. So the, the possibilities of what we can do to people's bodies is actually <coughs> more heightened now than it was when they were thinking this out. Yeah, absolutely. You're welcome. I've just made you all very uncomfortable <laughs> with the idea of getting a pacemaker. <laughs> Yep. Eat and your veggies, see your doctor. <laughs> <laughs> and that is, I think, another uh, element of, of our real world uh, that I feel I haven't seen as much in cyberpunk uh, as I would expect, which is that even for able-bodied people, 
uh, part of the concern is that these technologies reach a point where you have uh, you know, almost no choice uh, except to adopt them. You know, uh, at, with, with the common example being, uh, you know, the internet right now. You you literally cannot live your life without an email address. <laughs> you know, you literally cannot live your life uh, without without a phone number to get even uh, older. And you know, so although there is this nice idea of oh, I'll go off the grid and I'll be uh, you know self-sufficient. Uh, you know, the reality is that nobody is self-sufficient uh, just at a human level. And then you know, just further from the kind of power structures of technology, you almost have to end up uh, adopting them. Yes? Well, you're talking entirely from a first world perspective, because for the second and third worlds, this is a fantasy that they've never imagined they could be in. I communicate sometimes with poor people in third world countries. They've got iPhones. Yep, here. Yeah. Uh, and, yes, and, I, I, and, and their lives are now more miraculous than they've been in the history of mankind. Yeah. So I, I think we just have to say that we're, we're looking at this from our American cultural perspective and say that you know the billion people in China who are living lives that they could never have been living 30 years ago, this technology is, is, is from God. Uh, you are you're absolutely right that I am I am thinking about this from a, a first world perspective, and uh, I, I would disagree slightly in that I, I do think there are a lot of harms being dealt yeah. to people in in uh, uh, developing countries by the technologies that first world countries are developing. As, uh, but I mean, they are definitely first, very different. To first harms. of all, because many people in second and third world countries are the ones building the infrastructure that we are living on. And we're actually profiting off of the literal poverty level that has been created for them. They're not getting paid enough to make iPhones, for example. So there's that portion of it, for sure. Um, I think there's also the fact that we're doing a cyberpunk panel. And there's a genre specificity here that's really important to look at, which is that, unfortunately, cyberpunk hasn't been written about the second and third world. We can certainly imagine those things, but it is a first world problems kind of genre. That's actually part of what it's built on. You have a question or a comment? Uh, just a, a comment building, building sure. on that. Bill, Bill Gates prioritizes charity to African countries where you can mine computer parts. Yeah. Mm. So. Fair point. You know, I, I do think it's interesting. I, we have That's actually something we haven't seen either is the concept of the tech companies in cyberpunk settings and what their role is in creating this world, but also what their role is outside of the sort of first world cyberpunk setting. Mm -hmm. Like what's going on outside of the borders of the cities in Blade Runner? Mm -hmm. We kind of got to see that in Blade Runner 2040 something, I don't even remember, <laughs> when it's like Vegas is a complete and total wasteland <coughs> and a dog. Mm -hmm. But you know, you have to you have to wonder what are those world, what are the spaces outside of those cities? What does that look like? Yes. So I can actually speak to that. Um, Please Beth do. Beth is um, in her own panel right now on Hanabono, but we just uh, this last year um, we were working on a game set in a rural cyberpunk environment. So what is happening in the this country environment and these people who are in ways supporting these cities um, and living these um, lives underneath the thumb of corporations. But corporations done in a way that aren't like 
we're the evil masterminds, but just, it's, it's capitalism to the next level than it is today, where they have, they have groups that come out and help set up these net infrastructures. They have these other things that are going on. Um, but yeah, how do you how do you just live as like a normal person in these cyberpunk universes? And it's been really, really fun and interesting to play with that trope. I liked in Minority Report there was the country house that he yeah. dinner the parents or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and I, I'm trying to uh, limit the number of asides I have where I just point <laughs> out how our world is worse than, than cyberpunk. Uh, but I think one thing, you know, is there is a trope in cyberpunk if you do see or hear about you know the kind of uh, oppressed underclass you know that it's it's somewhat abstract typically it's you know there's tons of people doing some kind of you know very hard labor or uh, what have you uh, but we don't get into it too much and I think uh, one side effect of the development of our current technology is it has potentially become a lot easier <laughs> to imagine what that labor is given that now we have a, a hugely growing portion of our society that is performing jobs where you know it, it is literally mindless you know moderation of YouTube and things like that where you know uh, there's zero mental simulation and the working conditions are horrendous and yet it's in an office you know and it's not you know what you would typically think of as, as you know horrible hard labor there was an article about that um, I think it was for an article about Facebook moderators oh my god yeah it's like it rough. really I I one highly recommend this article, which was about the experience of Facebook moderators and their office conditions, and also prepare yourself to be really horrified um, and possibly want to delete your Facebook because, yeah, I mean, it's basically 16-hour days looking at every horrible thing you've ever seen on Facebook with no breaks, no therapists, <laughs> like... That said, you should probably delete your Facebook anyway, <laughs> just FYI. There's a lot there. Yes. Can you come closer? Because I can't hear you. Yes, I would love to come closer. Yeah, everybody feel free to come coming up to the front row and hang I'm out. I'm not sure the microphones are turned on, by the way, but you know, I wasn't going to stop you. Uh, yeah. They're not. Uh, I think, yeah, I think that I is the only microphone mine. that is actually uh, running. So uh, probably this is going to be a very low gain recording, but you know, it's fine. Yeah. Um, but to play out, uh, to play on a little bit of that, or. Um, that kind of expansion of like, we have all of this technology, what's going on in the second and third world, a fun little uh, thing to look up, if you're curious about some of that stuff, is the PlayStation War. Um, yes. For Coltan mm -hmm. in um, the Congo, mm -hmm. um, which is where China, or PlayStation, uh, oh, China, but PlayStation oversold PlayStation 2s in the year 2000, which caused Coltan prices to spike 10 times, which then uh, led to a bubble and a bunch of people becoming coltan miners overnight, and then they filled their orders, it crashed, led to civil war, militias, strife, all kinds of stuff. And it was the PlayStation. And yep. so like, those are like, there's so much ripe fruit in that area in Cyberpunk to go up of in our 21st century. Uh, for what it's worth, if you're interested in getting a phone uh, that does not use coltan or any other conflict minerals, uh, there is a phone called the Fairphone that you can get. I don't know, it might be sold out. Uh, pay no attention to the phone that I have, which isn't that. <laughs> But, it's a, but, but Coltan, if ethically done, can be like a thing, so it comes yeah. One thing that really applies to cyberpunk that I heard the other day that applies to life in general, life is a series of trade-offs. So it's always like, what are you going to give up to give to get what? Yeah, I think um, 
that is that's definitely true to an extent. And I, I think, you know, if there is a way to have ethical technology and, and, and a kind of capitalist system, the, you know, the ideal is having the ability to make choices about what technologies you are using and what drives you're making. And I, I think the, you know, the thing with cyberpunk and our real world is that unfortunately, often you can't actually make those choices. Someone's making those choices for you, and and especially you know, depending on how uh, marginalized you are, that you know, even more of those choices are going to be made uh, for you. That's actually one of the things. So um, you know, yes, most people should delete their Facebook. Sure, yeah, but that's also a privileged position to take because. For a lot of disabled people, Facebook is the only way that they can communicate with their friends if they can't leave home. So there is a vast community of disabled people, both on Twitter and on Facebook, who, for whom that is their community. And if they delete it, or if everybody they know deletes it, they lose that community. So one of those questions is, how do I ethically still have a f my friends and my family and my relationships when using the tools that actually give me that community are toxic. It's like, I, keep, I heard a rumor recently that I guess Google Hangouts is going to go away, and I know so many people who that is going to devastate. Yeah? Uh, the idea of choice also depends on being able to make informed choices. Right. Like Amazon Echo, for instance, where, like, where it wasn't apparent that, oh yeah, these are always on, they are always recording. And, and recordings are going to be listened to by someone ostensibly for the purposes of, of bettering uh, Amazon's voice recognition algorithms, but Amazon has lots of microphones, and Google is going to be having lots of microphones that were invited into people's homes without informed decision-making. Let me put it to you this way. At the Hugo Awards and San Jose, the gift for all of the Hugo nominees was a Google, one of the Google Home devices. And literally every single science fiction writer did this. Oh, they gave me a present. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. There were, I think, 30 Google Home devices that were just left on the gifts table. Because we were all like, absolutely not. I'm not letting that into my house. That's an evil spy robot. Yeah. <laughs> we have the genre awareness for this. Right. But here's the thing. Google Home and Alexa can be really good adaptive devices for people too. And this is one of those really tricky things. I, you know, the the smart homes, smart homes, could be one of the best inventions for disabled people. If one, they were fiscally accessible to us, because you know, if I could if I could tell my house to turn on the lights for me, I would never have to fumble for a light switch again. If I could tell my house, hey, I'm cold as fuck, could you please turn up the heat? I wouldn't have to go hunting for the button that I can't actually read the readout on to, tell, to help me turn the heat up. On the other hand, if you're married to somebody who's an abusive asshole who has the keys to that smart home, you know what they can do? They can start gaslighting you with your house, which has been documented by the New York Times. This is an actual new form of domestic abuse that's being tracked. So this stuff is all really complicated. It is not uh, simple. And I think that's part of why cyberpunk is also important. Because cyberpunk has never been a genre of easy decisions. Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned uh, Amazon uh, recording. And uh, one thing that made me think of is I, I, I wish uh, Joshua was here, because this is basically what you know, shock social science fiction is about. 
in, in that there are certain things in our real world that can have that kind of in, you know, incredible effect on how uh, technology impacts us in that um, you know, Amazon Echo, uh, or I guess before Amazon Echo, when you know, we, we first had these things with microphones coming out that were uh, listening, uh, myself and other people who work in uh, AI, you know, our general reaction was, well, I mean, whatever. You know, it, it, uh, voice recognition is not that good, and so either they're going to have to be manually listening to everything, which is unlikely, uh, uh, or you know, it, it's, it's not a big deal. And then, in about a year, uh, natural language processing went from barely anything to almost, almost fully functional, and able to just rec you know transcribe arbitrary speech into not only text, but intent and command and emotion. Uh, and then suddenly Amazon Echo became very, very, very terrifying. <laughs> I just had the most hard, I, so this conversation has just unlocked a rage point for me, which is that blind people can't access that proprietary technology for transcription. We're still stuck with Dragon Naturally Speaking, which is a shitty program. And if Amazon has the technology to make voice transcription actually functional, and they're not sharing it with the people who need it, that makes me so angry. Yes. And that, um, that was something I was just thinking about um, a little earlier when you were talking about the ability to do facial recognition, and we don't need ideas. But in reality, the government so very much requires us to have physical IDs, and they're not actually necessary, and can use that for punitive measures. Yep. And that that idea of the technology existing, but keeping it from people and only using it yep. like for your own personal needs or for profit, profitable needs, I think could be a really interesting thing to focus on more in cyberpunk. Also, who technology recognizes. Yeah. There's, um, there's been a whole bunch of stuff about facial recognition and race, and facial recognition and disability. Um, I can't do a pupil scan on my right eye because I don't have a pupil. Also, there's plastic over it. Um, but, you know, it, that's a problem. If they want to scan both eyes and my eye doesn't actually register, what's going to happen to me? Am I going to end up in one of those nice little black boxes we see on TV? Um, <laughs> yeah, and I don't want to get into uh, the... Um Regarding the kind of race and display, I don't want to get into it too much because I think it's well documented why it happens. But mm -hmm. you know, just to a little bit, you know, the, the reason why that happens is all these programs are trained on data sets that are collected, and sometimes the reason why the data sets are biased is just because you know you're taking pictures of people in your lab, and that and they all happen to be white dudes. Uh, but uh, but sometimes I think you know even more. I mean, it's one thing if you know, okay, we're in a lab and we happen to all be. Uh, you know, white dudes, and there's obviously another problem as to why that is the case, but I mean, you might as well take pictures of them. But the, there's, I think, an even bigger problem of, you know, I am collecting pictures from all over the internet, and somehow <laughs> I have ended up with, you know, 75% white men in my data set, and now that is all that this can recognize. And uh, one thing actually on that note is, I think sometimes uh, people especially in my field, will react to the kind of bias element uh, in like almost a positive way. Like, oh, well, I mean, it's, it's almost good if you're, uh, you're not a white person that you can't be recognized because that means it's harder to track you, you know? Uh, but actually, <laughs> it is the, uh, the opposite yeah. is true. Uh, there is, I can't remember, I can't remember the state or city, but 
uh, a particular police uh, district has started implementing uh, face recognition as part of their traffic stops. And I believe Amazon is, is what's, uh, what's powering it. And the way the face recognition works uh, is there's actually no such thing as uh, I don't know who you are. Uh, face recognition will always return an identity for you. It's just going to potentially be wrong. So, you know, if I have, and so at my lab, we, we do a lot of face recognition. And so if I have my little face recognition machine learning network and I take pictures of us, right. and then, uh, you know, I, take, I point my phone and, okay, recognize, recognize. And then I point my phone out here, it's still gonna start saying it's one of us, but it's just gonna be like lower confidence. And what they don't do is they don't train police to understand what that number means. So what happens is the police point their body camera at a, uh, a black person and it says, this person is this person with an outstanding warrant with 20% confidence. And they just ignore that last part. And, uh, uh -huh. and, yeah, and, that, and that is how things get very bad very quickly. I did not, so because I'm not a tech person, like I work, I work in teaching tech people how to not have bias. That's mm -hmm. part of what I do as a consultant. So my job is to show up at an AI company and be like, let's talk about disability. Um, so I don't understand, I didn't know that it was an output, mm -hmm. that there's an output that says, what percentage, oh my God, yes. that's horrifying and makes so much sense. Yes. And I don't like it when things that are bad make sense. <laughs> it also, uh, not, not necessarily dystopian, but uh, somewhat odd or concerning that uh, often the, the technology that is actually used to identify faces is the same thing that Spotify uses to recommend songs to people. <laughs> I don't like that. It, it's called an approximate nearest neighbor's search uh, uh, approach, and it, it's basically just saying, this is you, and we're gonna match it to the closest thing we have, Whether and if we don't have a picture of you, it's gonna match to something else. <laughs> so sort of in the same vein, because we're talking a little bit about the research and the, the technology stuff, I do want to talk about my favorite example for how people get erased in future thinking, which is, uh, has anybody here seen the Mortality Machine Project out of MIT? Okay, <coughs> so what they did was MIT researchers were like, hey, we should figure out how, what, how, what the public expects an autonomous car to do in trolley problem scenarios. What, what do we, because there will be those moments when an autonomous car has to make that choice. So how, how, do, how do we program it to make those choices in an ethical way based on public perception? Because we don't want the autonomous car to make the decision that everybody hates, right? Yes. It wants to be the less hateable choice. I teach this in my 101 writing class and my undergrads all kind of freak out after I get through this, as I show them the good place too. <laughs> um, but you know, we get, so we all know what the trolley problem is here, I think. Does everybody know what I'm talking about? Cool, wonderful. <laughs> um, so what they did was they listed a full list of the different bodies that they were asking questions about. They didn't have any disabled people <coughs> on the list. They had a dog. They had an old lady with a cane. They had a stroller. They had a man in a business suit. They had a literal just criminal description. But there were no disabled people, <coughs> which raises my question. So is a person in a wheelchair a stroller in this instance? 
Or does it not get calculated by the facial recognition? Or the, the body recognition? Yeah. Does the dog get counted as a dog instead of a dog that's guiding a blind person? Does the old lady with the cane get counted as a white cane, or is that just an old lady? And do we feel better about the old lady getting hit by a car or worse than a disabled person? But there were no disabled bodies being put in this test. And so the problem, this is why I now get to go talk at AI labs, because they're, I talk to somebody at an AI lab, and I'm thinking, so this is a problem. <laughs> Am I going to get hit by the thing that will actually give me freedom? Because that's kind of what it sounds like. Yeah, and there was a thing recently, I think, Uber, their self-driving cars uh, were not correctly programmed to identify pedestrians at all outside Correct. of uh, uh, outside of crosswalks. Correct. <laughs> Which is interesting. It's uh, a choice. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah, and there, there's just uh, there's so many edge cases as well uh, that I think people tend to not consider. In that, even if in, in a hypothetical nice world, uh, uh, self-driving cars were correctly programmed to identify you know, everyone and not just the, the majority population group, uh, it's still almost inevitable just based on time allocation that the, those outlier groups would end up being closer to the kind of margins of when the programming starts to break down. Yep. Uh, and, and it means that even if you can successfully identify someone in a wheelchair, that person is much more likely to be incorrectly identified as a bag of leaves or something than a normal, uh, you know, upright person is. And you know that Not is normal. obviously a problem. Sorry, yes, uh, uh, a standing person or a walking person, and there's you know a lot of reasons why. And the kind of uh, economic math of these companies almost inevitably means that it is just going to essentially be discarded as a, a point of effort. The other thing about self-driving cars is I was on a panel with a bunch of other science fiction writers, and I. I had one of those dudes, we all know who I'm talking about, and he said autonomous cars aren't going to change the future at all. And I laughed at him. Because if you have a population of people like myself who can't drive, I literally, you don't want me driving a car, I don't have depth perception or peripheral vision, it will basically be bumper cars with a five-year-old. <laughs> um, yes? Oh, well an interesting other side, again it's all trade-offs, there will be tens of thousands of less uh, people in wheelchairs if we have self-driving cars because of the, the safety is actually better with with people. With, with, with Not people. right now it isn't. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll agree with that. But. So is your premise that less people will get hit by cars and thus be paralyzed? The, the premise is that there would be less um, I would say I don't consider people in a wheelchair any worse human beings. They could be the best human being in the world. But there is a, a harm that they would prefer, most people would prefer, not to have that situation. And that due to the technology, there will be less people that, let's, let's just state it, are harmed in accidents and so on. Okay. But that doesn't count for, say, people who are born with spina bifida or who are born Correct. with paralysis or who experience other kinds of... Accidents. Correct, and, so and hopefully our technology will help them as well. I have complicated feelings about that statement. <laughs> um, here's why. Because the minute that we start using technology to erase disability or to cure people, we start treating disability as something wrong that needs to be fixed. 
Now, my disability, I'm wearing the t-shirt. Um, I was born with congenital rubella syndrome. That's actually something I would like to see go away because we can very easily get rid of rubella. It's called vaccinations and herd immunity. But blind people, we have a different way of living. We have a different experience. The same with deaf people. We have a culture, we have a community. Uh, wheelchair users have different sports. If you've ever watched Murder Ball, you know that it is one of the most brutal sports I've ever seen in my life. Mm -hmm. And it's fun to watch. And they have their own games and their own culture and their own experience. And so I think it's really complicated to talk about, well, this won't have to happen anymore. Because what, en what that ends up saying is that these things, and I'm not saying you are specifically saying this, but I'm saying that this is a dialogue that can sometimes turn into a part of the eugenicist world building that I object to. So that's part of why, this is why Abby puts me on this panel. <laughs> um, but I think we need to be careful about that in our game building and in our fiction building. Because when we start to think about, well, we can fix it, we're forgetting that there are good things about this life too. There's also the fact that uh, in a capitalist society, the way that uh, things are distributed tends to be utilitarian in the best case scenario. And so assistive hypothetical future technologies uh, are unlikely to be distributed to the individuals who are most in need of them, but rather the population groups uh, which you know, either have the, can have the most benefit to them or just can ha pay the most money for them. Uh, sorry, one second. And um, an example of that, I think, is there is a somewhat sizable population of people in the United States who are late-stage ALS patients who have what's called locked-in syndrome, which means they literally cannot move any muscles except their eyes. And it's, I, I, I'm sure, uh, uh, very unpleasant for them. And, and uh, just, I mean, to, although to be clear, despite that, you know, people tend, they choose to keep on living, you know, and they choose to find ways to communicate and to talk and write and do all sorts of things. Uh, but there's, there are very few actual effective technologies being designed to help uh, people with locked-in syndrome just because although the population is sizable in that we, there are thousands of people with this and you don't, don't want anyone to have this, it's not an effective market group and so it's yeah. not a strategy that any almost any company is going to go after. And I think there's also a conversation to be had within that, that there is a big difference between a degenerative disease that will eventually kill you and a disability that you live with. And I think that that's actually another part to that conversation is like, we, we genuinely do want to cure ALS because there is a lot going on there that is awful and it's difficult death and it's not, you know, lock-in syndrome is not fun. Um, but there's, there's a big difference between lock-in syndrome and being deafblind. So that's kind of one of the other conversations that we have within the disability community. But you're right, that's also the marketable thing. Um, you know, disability is a capitalist structure. Uh, disability was invented in the 1800s by the Industrial Revolution. It is a concept that is basically, oh, you can't do the job that the factory needs you to do, and therefore you are disabled. So in a capitalist structure like cyberpunk, disability still exists. Uh, so did you have a question? I, I, I just back to the Poorly programmed car who will hit the disabled person in the trolley problem. I, I think capitalism does have methods to resolve that. So you have, let's say, an airplane that you built and is starting to accidentally crash. And let's say it crashes twice and kills 400 people. Uh, 
hypothetically. Uh, your company will not be able to fly that airplane. It will be taking a huge hit to its finances. Well, that's demonstrably untrue. <laughs> well, I mean, we, we have just recently experienced uh, that happening. Right, and, and Boeing is taking a huge hit. Their CEO got ousted. Uh, they can't fly the airplanes. And they're, they're redesigning their software with the newfound knowledge that you know it doesn't work the way that you would want it to work. And it, it, it may not be the optimal solution, but it, it does get taken. It wouldn't take too many handicapped people being mowed down by driverless cars with driverless car company to be sued. So I think this is getting a little off topic, but I, I, I will say that I think I, I would describe the scenario you're posing, especially in the real world Boeing example, as a failure of capitalism rather than an example of something that you can rectify in that Boeing chose to not include the software patch that fixes the problem that caused the crashes because they wanted to sell it as an add-on. <laughs> That that is that only really That's only happens. That's a choice. Yeah, that really only happens in a capitalist system. And I mean, yes, you know, the market can self-correct uh, because it does and has, but uh, you know, it tends to only do that after harm has already been inflicted. Agree, agree. Harm reduction is not something cyberpunk is really good at. <laughs> no. Uh, I mean, I think that that's genuinely part of the, the part of the genre is that. By definition, cyberpunk is not about making things happy and shiny and fun. It is about looking at how bad things can get. Yep. Boeing will continue to exist. Boeing does continue to exist. And I mean, I'm sure it's a real bummer for the CEO who got fired, uh, although probably not because I'm, I'm sure they got a nice uh, severance package. I'm sure uh, they got a nice severance I, package. I do have friends who work at Boeing, and I can tell you I that do. for them, uh, it's a lot worse. <laughs> I live in. I used to live in Seattle, so like I'm very familiar with Boeing. And oh boy. <laughs> yeah, and also part of this kind of like in the cyberpunk conversation, like that ability to sue only comes with effective courts. And there are no effective courts in cyberpunk, right? or at least not in the cyberpunk that I write, because yeah. it's worse that way. <laughs> I'm an ITI. I'm not going to complain about the workplace at all because. I complained quite rightly and got fired before, just for complaining about the situation. So it's like, one thing that people don't recognize is yes, in this real world today, corporations have power over the employees. I mean, look at Citizens United. Yeah, I think a, a staple of cyberpunk and also our real world is the dissolution of a middle class and the continued pressure to push people into two groups. Those, again, going back to the Facebook moderators, where the jobs are definitely not necessarily easy, and in fact, often very, very difficult, but don't require any specific skill set, and therefore people can just be churned through. And, and I mean, you have that now with at-will employment in almost every state in the country, and then an upper class of highly specialized Often overvalued people, who uh, you know are lawyers, <laughs> are the only people who really have any sort of job security. Pardon me, while I just choke on the legal profession for a minute. Um, no, it's. I think you know the other thing that's interesting about that is that there's no reference to education in most cyberpunk. We don't really have a sense of how people get these specialized jobs. We don't really know how people train to be a part of these structures. So that's actually something I sometimes wonder, is like, well, how do you become 
these powerful CEOs in cyberpunk settings that you have no idea how to do economics or engineering or math. And we, we literally don't hear about it. And I think part of that is because cyberpunk kids doesn't get played anymore. <laughs> I kind of miss that game, actually. Um, but, you know, the other, the other thing is, is that these, these games and these stories are focused on sort of bigger questions. It's focused on the, the rise and fall of an entire society instead of just, you know, what the daily workings are of a city. But I think that those questions are worth asking. I do, I do think that um, I feel that certain cyberpunk can have almost like a libertarian bent they to sure it. Do. Uh, it's, I mean, you know, if you think about like Neuromancer, uh, you know, the protagonist, you, you know, it doesn't start with, uh, oh, I got a computer science degree and I'm good, I'm a good hacker, just I'm a good hacker and then my brain got burnt up and now I'm not anymore. And so it's always a very individualist struggle against uh, you know, the, big, uh, the big kind of monolithic entities. <laughs> Yeah, so here's, here's, here's a fun story for you. I was on a panel about cyberpunk with Bill Gibson in May, and boy, did that not go well for either of us. <laughs> he's, he's just, he is of the libertarian science fiction generation, and they dropped me, the disability advocate, on a panel with him to talk about cyberpunk, and that just was not fun for anyone, except maybe the audience, but they didn't have popcorn. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I think that's part of what I find so interesting about the cyberpunk genre is it was created by people who very much have a libertarian, almost sometimes sometimes frequently conservative outlook. And cyberpunk is now primarily being written by young, liberal, often anarchist writers. Did you have a, you have a question? Um, I wanted to ask you guys, since I know there isn't a whole lot of time, oh, what, what new ideas, what new tropes you would like to in the genre, like in the next generation of cyberpunk. Do you have an answer? I'm going to think a little bit on that. I mean, obviously I want to see actual disabled people in cyberpunk. If, if you're not writing disabled people into your cyberpunk, you're forgetting a huge part of the population. Um, I also would really, really like to see cyberpunk that is looking toward a more hopeful future. There's a, there's a genre called hope punk, hope punk that's currently kind of coming up. And I would love to see cyberpunk that is in a hope punk vein because I think it's ripe for it. I think that there is a lot of hope to be found in the genre if you're looking for it. And I think that we can start thinking about ways to make cyberpunk less of the grim, gloom and doom, laser eyes focus. Um, but I also just really hope that we start looking at climate, climate change. Uh, a lot of cyberpunk doesn't really deal with climate change, and I think that's the biggest thing that's missing right now. Yeah, I think uh, I have a similar answer. Um, not, not cyberpunk specific, but uh, my general uh, opinion about most media, I think, is... Uh, so my, my favorite book is a book called uh, The Trader Baru Cormorant, uh, and it's uh, about a, uh, a uh, black lesbian woman uh, in a kind of fantasy setting, and the author uh, you know, said in their blog that you know, people ask me, why did uh, you write about this character? You know, it doesn't make an interesting story because, uh, you know, they have to overcome all this other stuff before you can even get to the fantasy story. And they said, well, I mean, it's much more interesting to have all these actual barriers you have to overcome and still succeed. And so I think just having stories about uh, people with disabilities, people from uh, non-majority backgrounds, you know, just people who have to overcome actual challenges that are not just 
the big, bad third act villain that you topple, basically. I think the other thing that I want to see is instead of overcoming, because I think overcoming narratives are about being more than who you are. Or they're about, you know, I'm in a wheelchair, but I'm more than that. Um, and what I actually want to see is people telling stories where you are disabled or where you are black or where you are a Jewish person and your experience is informing your, your, your story, but it's not about overcoming that identity that you have. Because ultimately, I want the story to be about how we get to be in the story at all. Yeah, I think there's a lot of cyberpunk, you know, in the vein of, I have this uh, limitation and then I get this implant that fixes yep. it and now I now I can solve the problem and I, I think yep. you know lim uh, limitations are important you know in in, in the real world and in storytelling uh, to, to create an interesting narrative uh. also let's be real if you get an implant so I've been blind in this eye since I was two two months old you put an implant in my eye my brain is gonna have to entirely rewire itself in order for me to see out of two eyes like that's not an easy thing so I also hope that cyberpunk starts looking at how medically integrating new tech with your body is actually more complicated than just, hey, look, I've made a patch. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, do we want to do where you can find us? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, you can find me on Twitter, uh, Dexter Duckworth. Um, and that's pretty much it, probably. <laughs> uh, you can find me on snarkbat.com, and I'm also snarkbat on Twitter. Uh, any any last anything? Do you have business cards? No. I don't because uh, I'm really unprepared all the time. <laughs> I left them in There's my no house. <laughs> but you can. There's a contact form on my website. So I, I, I follow you on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, That's right, always great. a frightening thing that people say to me. We <laughs> follow you. Good job. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you all so Usually the phrase, I follow you on Twitter, is followed me going, oh no. <laughs> and uh, if you see me around, I'm happy to just list scary technologies that, that exist now at you. <laughs>